Mr. Vice President, members of Congress, honored guests, my fellow Americans. We are fortunate to be alive at this moment in history. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Global Get Down. I'm your co-host, Johnny. Joined by a co-host, Shale. And today we'll be unlearning the American hegemony. Just to review, unlearning is the act of breaking down traditional institutions and commonly accepted perceptives of history as to better understand why we think about international relations the way we do. Unlearning is also the theme of the season. With each episode, we're unlearning a new topic. Today, we will start out with a short introduction on the topic of the American hegemony, and then we will move on to an interview with this week's guest, Dr. Jessica Wong. But before that, let's get into introducing the basic of, of American hegemony. The central claim of hegemonic stability theory is that a single great power is necessary to create and sustain order and openness in the international political economy. In short, hegemony simply means having certain influence and authority over others, be that economic, militaristic, or in specific to this episode, cultural. In recent years, no topic has occupied the attention of scholars of international relations more than that of the American hegemonic decline. While that is an interesting topic to dwell on, in this episode, we will also debunk some myths associated with the earlier period of hegemonic ascendancy. So the Second World War was a major turning point in the history of the 20th century. The realignment of the world's leading powers had a momentous impact on the post-war character of international relations, which now featured a bipolar world. At the end of the global conflict, US possessed a monopoly on the atomic bomb and the American business produced two thirds of the world's manufactured goods. The Soviet Union with a powerful army but traumatized society and economy was a distant second to the dominant power of the U.S. By 1950, the two superpowers and their allies engaged in a competition for global spheres of influence, a defining element of the Cold War. U.S. efforts to contain communism reached their height during their wars in Korea and Vietnam. These efforts resulted in the establishment of an American international security state which coordinated military and political initiatives during the Cold War and maintained U.S. hegemonic position in the international system. In the era of American hegemony, this relationship between anti-colonial nationalism and empire tended to be resolved in favor of independence because U.S. relationship to the international system was not based on maintaining an extensive formal empire. Despite the existence of the U.S. colony in the Philippines, the American empire operated more along the lines of informal means of control, like establishing American-style proctorates. American policymakers accepted colonial forms of governance, but the moment of American official thinking, as well as post-World War II U.S. economic goals, led away from colonial empires towards the establishment of a state-based system. In this way, the age of decolonization intertwined with the era of American hegemony. 
Encouraging colonization along pro-West communist lines became a goal of American policymakers as a focus on state-based international order. America's allies, especially Britain, regularly supported these goals through their European colonial powers, were sometimes conflicted about their positions in the international system, and also fought a number of dirty colonial wars as part of the resistance to decolonization. The modern day state system is thus not simply a natural product of the evolution of natural sentiment in the international system, but was created through a complex combination of forces which included diplomacy, violence, and the international strategies of the post-war hegemon. In their economic diplomacy, U.S. makers fostered the creation of global economic institutions and multilateral trade agreements. Their goal was to establish a liberal international trade regime based on low tariffs and improved access to international makers. Their diplomacy was shaped by the experience of the Great Depression. So today, to help us understand America's role in the global system and why it's so pivotal for international relations as we know it, we bring Dr. Wong, the co-chair of International Relations Department here at UBC, as well as a professor of American history of the 19th and 20th century. Hi, Dr. Wong, how are you? Hi, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. That's great to hear. Um, so Dr. Wong, we were wondering, what do you think has been the catalyst in the rise of American hegemony? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, first of all, I think maybe catalyst is not quite the right word, because I think catalyst suggests some kind of sudden precipitating factor in the rise of U.S. power, whereas um, historically, I think the rise of U.S. power, we should see it as a long and gradual process that, you know, this was a development that really started with the, the rise of U.S. nationhood in the first place in the late 18th century. Um, it was facilitated by U.S. territorial expansionism westward and the process of settler colonialism that provided you know, the, the basis for the, um, the economic development of the United States. And then throughout the 19th century, the United States also pursued a strategy of power that was really based on the expansion of foreign trade and sort of taking advantage of a of the kind of economic dynamism that the sort of resource and population base of the United States offered. Um, and such that I think one of the key turning points and moments is the tail end of the 19th century, when it was clear that the United States was the foremost industrial power in the world. Uh, for example, by the end of the 1890s, the U.S. was the top steel producer of the world. It was producing more steel than the next three steel producers combined. So that tells you something that's quite impressive about what the United States became in the space of a little over a century. Because you know, when the United States started out, it was a very small country in a lot of ways. Its status was uncertain. As a new nation, it wasn't clear it could even survive. Um, but a little over a century later, it was the economic powerhouse of the world. And at that stage, I think that's when you begin to see a significant expansion in the stature of the United States as a global power, that it became a regional power by projecting um, power and influence throughout the Caribbean basin and across the Pacific, and by the interwar period was increasingly parlaying that status into a kind of new stature in US global affairs. And you know, it's out of that that you get to the post-World War II order 
that you're probably, you know, more familiar with as that era of two global superpowers. Yes, that's, that's really interesting. Also, when you bring up economic dominance, kind of, it also was responsible for establishing the World Bank and GATT, and also responsible for the most favored class. That's really interesting. But I was wondering, like, how did American colonialism contribute to the development of American hegemony? Would you mind delving into that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's essential, right? I mean, first of all, the settler colonialism that, um, that creates the territorial boundaries that we're familiar with today as sort of what the United States is, we have to understand that as a colonial process. You know, for a long time, historians kind of saw westward expansion as somehow the filling in of the destined map of the United States, rather than understanding that this is a colonial history and that US colonialism doesn't just start in 1898 with the acquisition of um, new insular territories, new islands across the Pacific and in the Caribbean, but rather westward expansion is a, a colonial process that was essential to building US power. And then at the tail end of the 19th century and on into the early 20th century, I mean, the United States, you know, leaders like Theodore Roosevelt were following a strategy that was just premised on the notion that the United States needed colonies, it needed these island way stations as, um, as the means to establish um, sort of American power across the Pacific in order to, to try to access markets in Asia, especially China. Um, and that, so, you know, in that sense, American strategy in the early 20th century was premised on colonial power and on sort of making a claim for the United States to be able to enter into a world of imperial powers as it hoped, you know, an aspiring equal, right? And so that was a kind of claim to global status. I think I think what's really interesting when talking about American colonialism and how it influenced too is that not only in sheer military power did America held its influence uh, in the global scale, but also in pop culture. You know, when we look at American soft powers, when studying, for example, Hollywood uh, movies like Indiana Jones, for example, comes to mind. It just paints this idea of. Um, the dichotomy of like East and West, right? Um, as we've seen, a lot of like Edward Said influencing here, you know. So I just, I'll just have a question: How did American popular culture affect the development and sustainment of American of the American hegemony, right? Like how did I grew up in Brazil, for example, and growing up in Brazil, we just looked to the United States as if like the, the highest point of culture and. It's crazy because you move here and you just see like this perception that we had back at home of like when you're 21, you go to Las Vegas or go to New York or go to Hollywood. You have these ideas. So it seems like they kind of America America kind of like dominated even like our minds to some degree through pop culture. So I was just wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, no, that's a great observation, especially the kind of colonization of the mind that you mentioned, because I think that's absolutely right, that, you know, power is not sort of perpetuated solely by military or economic means, but culture is also a form of power, and, and it operates in sort of... In, to great extent in more fluid and unpredictable ways than um, sort of the typical forms of hard power as well. So something like Hollywood movies, which kind of perpetuate 
particular images of American wealth and prosperity already in the 1920s, and not just in Europe either, but um, I mean, places like Southeast Asia, Hollywood movies were also very popular. And they kind of, um, they allowed people to sort of imagine these worlds of wealth and glamour that they too wanted, right? I mean, I think even, you know, in the 1920s in certain parts of South America, since you mentioned being from Brazil, yeah, California style houses, there was a kind of vogue and rage of that style of architecture because people abroad, they wanted that kind of life and lifestyle. So that's really important. And um, yeah, and I mean, you know, and, and that continues in the Cold War period. Like my parents were teenagers in the 1950s in Taiwan. And, you know, I get the impression from my mom that they were kind of movie mad. Like they knew all the Hollywood movies and they were kind of, you know, my mom and her friends were sort of thinking longingly about particular um, Hollywood actors. Like my mom told me this hilarious story about a friend of hers. You know, like all students, they had uniforms. So they're all dressed the same. But one of her friends was just totally in love with Gregory Peck, the Hollywood actor. So on her shirt tails, she embroidered his initials. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you something about kind of the allure of Hollywood. And, and in a place like Taiwan, you know, which was such a kind of in some ways, creation of the Cold War in that moment or so heavily dependent on U.S. Cold War support. Um, you know, it wasn't just about military and power or the projection of geopolitical power. It was also about these kinds of um, cultural exchanges and transformations. And, and this is really interesting too, because I think it's very connected to the idea of like American exceptionalism. Like uh, there's a lot of ideology in Hollywood movies about um, families moving into America, or like if you look at military American movies, they always paint America as like the savior going into this, you know, like nation. And, and that very well connected to a lot of American foreign policy, right? There's a lot of elections, me coming from South America, who have been interfered by the US, right? Like if you look at Chile's election, we have like a quote from uh, Harry Kinsinger, who said, um, the issues are much too important for the chilling voters to be left to decide for themselves when, yeah. uh, you know, applying the coup with uh, Pinochet. So, yeah, like, we can see how culture influences uh, the superstructure and influences, like, you know, material reality that also, like, re-influences um, culture and so on, right? So Yeah, yeah and it's also a bit to, oh, sorry, oh. go ahead. Oh, it's also a bit to try and get people to align themselves in particular kinds of ways, right? Yeah. It's a bid to get people to sort of see themselves, you know, at, at the level of everyday life to orient themselves towards the United States, towards a kind of U.S.-centered economic system, and then during the Cold War, sort of explicitly not aligning themselves with, um, with the Soviet version of possibility, right? Yes, I agree to what Johnny said as he brings in the Latin American perspective. I think a lot of South Asia also undergoes this colonization of the mind as uh, what you and Johnny said, because this perception of the American dream is what a lot of Indians hold themselves. A lot of kids in India dream of going to the States and having a better future for themselves. So yeah, I think popular culture is a very important way the American hegemony sustains itself. But um, I was also wondering about 
their military force, right? If you ask a lot of US citizens, they have a lot of patriotism associated to their country, to their military, and they think it's very strong and they would even die for their country, how their military uh, people would. So I was just wondering, um, how does the strength and the perception of the American military affect its ability to sustain its position as the global superpower? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of the question is whether or not the United States is still sustaining its position as a global superpower, right? Because um, I think we're in a moment and have been, you know, you know, this has been evolving since the end of the Cold War, but it's become ever more apparent in the past 10 years that, you know, the United States is not the kind of unquestioned global superpower of the post-Cold War period that, you know, the the alignments of power and, and kind of um, sources of power around the world are changing. China has become a global superpower and the question of what that means for international order in the future, I mean, you know, none of us really know, but, um, but so there's that issue of whether or not the United States is really able to maintain its position. And then within the United States itself, like, you know, the, the image you, created of sort of American patriotism and belief in military power, that's sort of still true, but sort of not true in the sense that, you know, the the kind of unquestioned confidence in U.S. military power and kind of U.S. willpower, I think has been, you know, on the decline ever since the Vietnam War. Um, And then I think there are internal political challenges in the United States too. And I see my internet connection is unstable, so I hope it holds. But there are internal political challenges in the United States that are also undermining the ability of the country to function, you know, both within the United States and to um, carry out a kind of consistent mission abroad. And, um, and, and so the, you know, that, that kind of the patriotic confidence in a notion of an American future in which the United States sort of, you know, inherently connotes kind of opportunity and um, and an ability to achieve, you know, the, the very kind of set of ideals that you said in India were sort of attracting people to move to the United States. That's very much in question right now in the U.S., precisely because, you know, the social safety net has been deteriorating for decades. Uh, the, the sense of common sort of civic culture is deteriorating, right? We, we had an election in which like one of the major parties can't even, so many of its members can't even really bring themselves to concede that this was a legitimate election and that the results were, le- were legitimate. And I think this is having effects not just in the United States, but also in terms of its ability to continue to project power um, globally as well. I wonder, like, hearing you talk about this, I just wonder if this decline of almost like American hegemony comes with almost like an, an unmasking of what America like really is in, in their in their missions abroad. A lot of their, um, you know. Uh, campaigns abroad before they were under the idea of bringing freedom right um, coming back to Edward Said the idea of the the Orient, the idea of the east right as something that um, the west needs to save almost right and I feel like now with this change what we see is like almost the unmasking in the same way like that's not really what's going on especially with now you mentioned like America holding a party 
that um, won't even accept the legitimization of, of a vote. I think that does something very strong, to, like that has a very big impact to American foreign policy because people start looking at America not as this shiny city on the hill and starts looking at them as someone that's, you know, quite a bit more problematic than they talk to be, right? Yeah, and that's where soft power comes yeah. in too. It's sort of what kind of image is the United States projecting of itself? And, and more generally in the world today, what kind of image is democracy projecting of itself, right? Because that's one of the big challenges right now, especially with a kind of resurgence of right-wing nationalisms in different parts of the world. And this isn't just the United States, you know, it's in Brazil, Brazil. right? You know that full yeah. well. It's in different parts of Europe. It's in places like the Philippines, India too, right? Um, you know, this is, this is not, the time we live in is not a time of confident sort of democratic um, endorsements of freedom, that the versions of freedom at work in democracies right now look sort of, you know, they look unstable right now. They look sort of dystopian in some ways. And that's also what allows, you know, a country like China to project messages, you know, both abroad and to their own citizens that, you know, maybe these democracies aren't all they're cracked up to be and that, you know, a kind of um, well-designed well state-imposed order is sort of offers superior opportunity and stability to what's going on in these other countries. And, um, you know, that's a real challenge to the United States, and especially when you have scenes like what happened on January 6th, and, right, of 2021. And, um, you know, that has reverberations abroad. It's, it's interesting, too, because um, you have this, like, almost this uh, triangle, um, this trilemma of hyperglobalization. You have democracy and sovereignty, right? Like, with a more uh, ever-globalized world, countries, I feel, they're having more troubles um, maintaining their, their sovereignty as well as maintaining democracy, right? Like um, in econ, we touched about this, like how you can't really have the three of them. A lot of our world problems today in this very globalized world, like think of COVID, for example, where, where problems that nations need to come together to deal with it. But we see the surge in right-wing nationalism, like you mentioned, of countries wanting to isolate themselves from the global spectrum, right? Wanting to isolate themselves, like the, the quote, America first, for example. Right. Uh, in Brazil, we have a similar one. It's uh, Brazil on top of everyone, God on top of all. Right. That was, that was the slogan. So, so yeah, totally. I want to segue this into another question. Um, in your opinion, do you believe that the academic community has come to a consensus on the United States still holding a hegemonic uh, position in the international system? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the answer to that question kind of revolves around what you mean by hegemony, right? And, um, and, and that's a kind of difficult question to answer. I, I think for me, the more um, important phenomenon to recognize is, you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier, is just this reconfiguration of power that's happening in the world post-Cold War and just the transition from a bipolar order of US and Soviet power to something that's different, that we don't yet quite know what it's gonna look like. And that's just a lot messier. And because you know the future is unknown, it also looks a lot more potentially unstable, 
Um, so we just don't know what this multipolar world is going to end up looking like. Um, and, you know, and, and contrast that with, you know, a kind of weird sort of stability in the Cold War, something that only looks like stability in retrospect, because, of course, in the lived reality of the Cold War, there was just the, the reality of proxy wars and post-colonial conflicts like Vietnam that, you know, were defined by extraordinary violence and tragedy for people in, you know, different places around the world. And the odd, the other odd aspect of Cold War so-called stability was the ever-present kind of threat of nuclear annihilation as well if, um, if the US and Soviet Union didn't manage their conflicts and allowed them to flame out of control. So it's an odd sort of stability. And maybe it's only a stability that exists looking retrospectively. But, um, but at least, you know, the funny thing about the Cold War is that people living at the time period, they kind of assumed that that was the way of things and would be forever. That US-Soviet conflict would just sort of define global affairs for, you know, for the foreseeable future, if not in perpetuity. And then it all disappears and unravels very quickly in the late 1980s and early 1990s, such that finally this, the Soviet Union itself breaks apart and disappears from the map. And it's an, it's an astounding transition. But before that happened, you know, all like so much writing about the Cold War just started with an assumption that it was there to stay. And that's stability in some sense. That's, that's really interesting. I just wanted to um, address how we were talking about the dichotomy between East and West and Johnny Blood of the Orient. I just wanted to um, refer to Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. Um, so the question I think I had um, is what do you think what is challenging America's position as, as this global superpower, as this global hegemon, is it kind of disintegrating itself because of its own actions? Or do you think it's because of the East kind of growing faster than the West per se? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bit of both, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you have the United States as a kind of, you know, some might argue it's a kind of creaky late imperial state that is maybe, you know, reaching its end point, or maybe not, we don't know. But you also have places in the world like China that, um, you know, are finally emerging from you know, decades of semi-colonialism, um, followed by, you know, the communist state's own kind of difficult path to developing itself. Um, to it finally, you know, China's emergence as, a, you know, an economic powerhouse um, and with sort of possibilities to project power in the world that, you know, China didn't have in, say, the early 20th century, certainly not in the same form. And so, yeah, both of so both of these trends are real, right? Um, but also both countries face um, difficult challenges as well. You know, we've talked a little bit about the challenges the United States faces. I'm not a China expert, but I think for China, um, the environmental challenges that the country faces are enormous, um, you know, and how you keep, you know, how you keep feeding and supplying fresh water to, um, to you know, a very large population. Also, you know, China, 
if China has a major economic downturn at some point, you know, then it, it's hard to know what will happen to the kind of um, social and political stability there. Um, you know, that could be a real challenge for the state to manage. Um, but like, I think any large and powerful state, you know, has major challenges in, in order to try and maintain and perpetuate that, that status. No, totally. I think it's interesting seeing the rise and fall of empires almost, right? Like, it's like you mentioned, it almost, it seems so, when we look back, for example, the Cold War, it seems like so predictable until, you know, until you're there at the actual time. And then people think it's going to last forever. You know, I'm sure a lot of people my age think, um, or at least thought, American hegemony would last forever, right? Like, you think that these, this power is going to continue to hold its, um, its presence, right? Especially through um, us growing up with the idea of American exceptionalism, growing up with the idea of um, soft powers, growing up with the idea, with these ideas, right? I just wanna know, like, we took we took the path of um, the growth of American hegemony, right? I was just wondering, what is the path of decline? Like, what has been, um, you know, the steps? Mm -hmm. So not yeah. to say the catalyst. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that in some ways is the great unknown, right? You know, if there's going to be kind of post-imperial decline, what is that going to look like? Um, you know, is it going to be some some kind of just horrifically chaotic disjuncture, right? You know, whether it's a kind of literal fracturing of the country or, or just... Um, you know, the country remains united, but it, but the political polarization is such that it becomes like internally a very unstable kind of place. Um, or is it going to be more of a gentle landing, right? Um, will the United States just be sort of, you know, a, a somewhat, somewhat weaker country? Um, or, or maybe the issue is not so much of American decline, but just the fact that other powers have also been on the rise. And so, you know, you know, loss of hegemony is not necessarily by itself decline. It just means um, kind of loss of relative position compared to others. And that's where, you know, that question of a kind of multipolar order and what does it look like comes in. Um, but, you know, I mean, other countries, they have, you know, they have gone into kind of a, a kind of imperial decline, if you want to word it that way, you know, countries like England and France, um, or earlier in the 20th century, Germany, you know, lost their empires or had mm -hmm. saw them greatly reduced. And they had to learn to live in the world in different ways. Um, and I guess that's yeah. true of any country in a changing global order. It has to learn to live in different ways, whatever sort of whatever developments come their way. No, it's, it's, it's such an interesting reflection. Um, I always think because this is exactly true. Like what you mentioned, like you had um, the England, for example, um, who you know are still like meaning like they're still um, quite influential in the, in the global spectrum, right? So loss of hegemony doesn't mean um, a decline in some way. Um. So I I had a question as well. I think this is this is where history becomes really important. I know history is a discipline. It's like why you're just learning facts but i think it's so much more than that i feel like if you know the history you can tell what the future would look like and now we're debating about this multipolar um new world order so if 
there's a decline in the American hegemony, what would the future world look like? Would it be China as the next global hegemon or would there be a global hegemon? Can the world exist without one? It's just like, what does the future look like right now? Or would it be global? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the big question. And I guess, you know, I think we study history for a lot of reasons that have to do with getting a certain kind of perspective on the present and developing an appreciation for all the possibilities of what kind of the world can look like, what global order can look like. But I stay away from prediction <laughs> because I think what um, one of the things history tells you is something about the unpredictability of events and um, and our, our limits in terms of trying to forecast and foresee what the future will look like. But you know, but history does give us kind of basis for comparison. It gives us points where we. Uh, events that we can think about and try to derive meaning from and maybe take a certain amount of warning or wisdom from as well. For example, you know, what is it to look, uh, what is it to live in a multipolar world in which there's no clear center of power and sort of the potential center power may be constantly shifting? Like, that's the Great. early 20th century, right? That's the period I spend most of my time mm -hmm. studying these days. And um, I think you know, to those who wanted, who, who would ask me to justify, well, why do you study the early 20th century and not something more recent? And one answer is that, you know, the, the Cold War bipolar order doesn't actually tell us much about what it is to live in a world that has multiple centers of power and, and forms of instability that accompany that. Um, you wanna know what a world like that is? You look at the early 20th century, um, and, and, and that, of course, also gives us a certain, um, you know, source of warnings, right? Because we also know what the interwar period looked like in the 1920s and 30s and how global order just unraveled. And it was a period of, you know, instability, uncertainty <laughs> about the structures of power in the world, resurgent nationalisms, <laughs> you know, um, resurgent racisms in various forms. And also, you know, we didn't, we were talking a little bit about this earlier about sort of interdependence and um, its promise, but also its costs. And so, you know, the promise of interdependence was um, the kind of liberal economic order and the kind of benefit that trade brought and its promise of enrichment for all. But then in the 1930s, the Great Depression comes along. It seems like, you know, economies are dragging each other down, that the price, that, that interdependence now seems to have costs in the early 1930s. And that's when you get all of these efforts to, um, to turn inward, to follow more um, self-sufficient autarchical strategies that include the expansion of, um, of imperial power and of territory as a kind of autarchical economic project. And that's a kind of cautionary tale about what happens when countries abandon interdependence even though interdependence sometimes has costs as well as benefits. Yes, I agree. If you look at historically the power transition between Britain and the US, you can see that uh, the US adopted kind of like a multilateral approach towards their rise to power. Um, and they were 
more willing to form bilateral and multilateral trade agreements with countries, but Britain did not. As you might be aware of this sterling era, they weren't able to convert their currency with anybody, but the US was able to. Um, but what about the power transition right now? Does the decline of the US-led order and the alternative rising order mean that the US-led order was perhaps not as equal and inclusive in the first place? Maybe there was an inherent problem with the order? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, lots of scholars talk about, right? You know, the, you know, those who argue about um, dependency theory as a way to interpret American economic power would, um, you know, would ask those kinds of questions and offer those kinds of critiques. And, um, yeah, you know, we always have to realize that these, um, these aspirations towards collaborative order also take place in a world in which power relations are unequal and in which you know money often means control and um and and this was true of you know britain in the 19th century when british free trade policy was something that you know britain in a sense could afford because they had so much financial power you know similar kind of argument with uh, can be made for the united states and we're all already seeing with china you know where china is investing in different parts of southeast asia or africa these questions about chinese um the chinese you know, Chinese finance creating relationships of dependency and projection of power. Um, like, you know, I was once teaching a class on um, on pre-1945 U.S. foreign relations, and we were talking about U.S. finance in the Caribbean and what that meant for governments essentially losing kind of control and sovereignty. And one of the students said, this sounds just like, you know, what China's doing in financing certain big developmental projects in Southeast Asia. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, it's the for countries that want development but can't finance it, they're in a bind, right? They need foreign capital, they need foreign expertise and aid, but that inevitably also has a price. And that's the kind of conundrum, whether it's, you know, British money building railroads in South America in the late 19th century, or, you know, American finance in the early 20th century in the Caribbean, or American-sponsored development in the Cold War, or Chinese-sponsored development today in different parts of the world. Hello, Connects. Uh, maybe history is not about predicting things, but history is very connected to with making sense of the world today, right? And uh, that has been our um, aim with this podcast. It's called Unlearning. And we kind of like took inspired to like Foucault's idea of taking back to the genealogy of things to like try to make sense of how are things right now. And um, that's exactly how we see here, right? Like learning, uh, you mentioned learning the 20th century and comparing to the world now to kind of make sense of these systems. Um, you can often have a pretty um, gloom <laughs> perspective on the future though, I must say. But yeah, um, do you have any other questions, Rhea? None for now, Dr. Long. Thank you so much for being here. Your insight has really been helpful. It's 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 really great because right now we see America as uh, this global superpower, this global hegemon, but we really need to unlearn that and understand that there's alternative forms rising. The current mm -hmm. hegemon, as we know, is not sustainable. 
And I guess we need to think about, you know, that alternative, those alternative possibilities for the world and what we want it to look like. So, you know, there, there's the kind of gloomy perspective that um, one might see, but, um, but that's also a lesson as to why, you know, people need to do what they can to promote the kinds of possibilities and the kind of world they'd like to see. Yeah, I, man, that's why I like IR so much. Like I always enjoy having these conversations because I think like it just sparks like such a wonder for the world and just shows like these complexities that a lot of times come to us in a way too simple manner that we just like, you know, almost, I sometimes like, it feels like it's almost way too simple or way too complicated that we tune out, right? So having conversations like that and looking at history really gives us a different outlook on things. And it, like I said before, it makes us make sense of what's going on right now, which is really interesting. Yeah. So thank yeah, you so helps. much. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for such a lively conversation and for inviting me to spend some time with you. Thank you, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Wong.